Please join me in prayer. May the words of my mouth and meditations of all our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. So if we're called to hope for heaven, what does it look like? If we're called to hope for heaven, what does it look like? Hope at a psychological level is a present expectation of a desired future. And the way that hope works is, if it's going to be any good, it has to have real content. People don't excite, get excited about going nowhere. If you are going on your summer vacation and you know where you're going to be and how long you're going to be, you start to think about it, you get fired up. That's the way that hope works. My family went to the Adirondack Mountains every summer growing up. I can tell you all about Lake George, 32 miles long, mile and a mile and a quarter wide. I can tell you about the water. I can tell you about the mountains. I could go on all morning. The point is when, as a young boy, it was June and the calendar of my two parents who were teachers was up and we were getting ready to get in the car, I was excited. I wanted to go to the sand on the beach at Lake George and look at the mountains, and I had a picture in my mind. Well, we're going to be spending eternity, last time I checked, that's a long time, in heaven. It would be good if we knew what it was like. So I want you to look at your text this morning, if you'd be kind enough with me. We're in Isaiah chapter 2, and I'm going to be looking at the five verses that we have in Isaiah, just from the perspective of this question of what is heaven actually like. Now, this is a portrait of the Messianic kingdom that we're given in Isaiah. You and I are in Advent, which is a season of P. That's P-E-A. Everybody with me? The vegetable, right? P-E-A. So preparation, expectation, and anticipation. That's the way to think about Advent. Think of P, the vegetable. And what's hard about Advent is you're actually called to prepare for not one, but two comings. The coming of Jesus in great humility at Christmas and the coming of Jesus at the end of time in power and great glory to judge the living and the dead and to complete history. So the God who made the world, who died to redeem the world, is coming back to the world to reign over the world. Everybody with me? The question is, what does it look like? Well, I appreciate you asking. Look at your, look at your text. It's a beautiful portrayal at the beginning of Isaiah of this coming messianic age, which was inaugurated with Jesus, but which never actually finds its ultimate fulfillment until glory. And it has a certain texture. It has a certain uh, characteristic. And I want to elucidate it in some detail. So if you look at your text and you think about it, see what you make of my adjectives. I've got seven of them. First of all, it's universal. Look at your text. It's all the nations. I could go on all morning just about this. They don't necessarily, sorry to break it to you, speak English in heaven. Uh, in Revelation, it says people from every tribe and language and tongue and nation. It's a universal community because God is the God of the whole world. And the God who made the world sent Abraham to bless through him the whole world because our God is a global God. So heaven is a redeemed, glorified, global, universal, multilingual, multi-ethnic community. As a student, in college, I got to go a couple of times to missionary conferences, and every once in a while they'd stop and say, everybody here say the Lord's Prayer in your native language. And at some of those conferences, there were 40, 50, 60 different languages that were spoken during that time. It made a huge impression on me as a young student. Heaven's going to be like that. It's just like 
Pentecost, it's the reversal of Babel. You could even hypothetically think that everybody in heaven speaks their own language and the person to whom they're speaking understands it. That would be a great way. So everybody speaks as they're trained to speak and everybody hears as they are trained to hear. A perfect portrait of a universal community that's redeemed. You all with me so far? Second of all, it's attractive. And this is powerful. Look at your text. Many peoples, verse 3, shall come and say, well, you know, it's church and it's optional and there's lots of things to do on Sunday, so who cares? No, that's not what it says. It says, this community is so exciting, it's so beautiful, it's so powerful, it's so truthful, it's so redeemed, it's so interesting, I'll move heaven and earth to be part of it. People are dying to get to this place because it's so good. Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord. It's where you've got to be. It's peaceful. Powerful passage on peace, verse 4. Spears into pruning hooks, nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. It's flourishing. I love the description of humanity in this passage. When it says, come, verse 3, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord's house of Jacob, they have a desire to do what? Their minds want to learn the truths of the Lord, and their hearts want to obey the path of the Lord. There's a beautiful portrayal of human flourishing because the human beings there are open to the will of God. They're doing the right thing for the right reason in the right way. It's also, I'm still not, John, I'm ganging up on you. That's four so far. Five, it's righteous and it's just. He shall judge between the nations. And the law, verse three, toward the end, for out of Zion shall go forth the law. It's righteous and it's just. It's secure, shall be established, verse 2. And uh, Hebrews wonderfully said, our God has given us a kingdom which cannot be shaken, cannot ever be shaken. And for those of you who are Jurassic Park people and you remember that horrible scene when he shakes the little house with the people in it, it doesn't matter who it is, it doesn't matter what the enemy, it will always stand. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And oh yes, it's also truthful, is it not? It's, it's permeated by the light of the Lord, which is the truth of God and his character. Universal, attractive, peaceful, flourishing, righteous and just, secure and truthful. It's awesome. And can I just point out one aspect of this in particular this morning? One of the things about preaching in a context like this is we have to be global in our perspective. And we have, I think, a huge challenge in North America relating to this righteousness and just part of this vision. And the reason for that is most of us actually aren't experiencing any or very little injustice. You do know that that's not true for most of our brothers and sisters around the world. So what I want you to do for just a moment is I want you to think about Ukraine for just a second. Think about your Ukrainian Orthodox brothers and sisters. NPR had a story this week portraying some of the surgeons who are working repairing some of the soldiers in the dark because Putin and company have been so relentless in bombing the infrastructure, they don't even have light and electricity. Now, think about what that person thinks about in terms of what they go through on a daily basis and how angry you get at all the damage that's being done by these military weapons, but also not having any light. And you have this promise of a completely just future where the law of the Lord goes out, 
where everything is done in the right way by the right people for the right reason? Do you think that, that, that one of those doctors doesn't just long for that in ways that we don't? We need to see the power of this for ourselves, but we also need to see it for our brothers and sisters around the world. So here's the thing that I want you to realize this morning, brothers and sisters. We have much to hope for. Yes, it's okay to get excited about your summer vacation, but you should be even more excited because you're going to be spending heaven in eternity. And last time I checked, the community that's portrayed in this passage is nothing less than absolutely, splendidly, beautifully, awesomely fantastic. It is a beautiful, exciting portrait of a redeemed, international, multilingual community. It would be great if we could get there right away. Even so, come Lord Jesus. That's what you have to hope for. And what I want to do um, just in conclusion this morning for a second is I want to kind of apply this image of this hope in two ways. I want to do it in a general sense and then a specific sense. I'm very excited about verse 3, if you go back to it. That he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. And the thing that I want you to think about this morning is this. Part of what it means to understand God's vision for the church is, the church is to be however inadequate, right? You and I are sinners, right? C.S. Lewis says we're bent, right? So we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Everybody here is flawed. We live in a fallen world as fallen people. Yes, that's all true, but we're redeemed sinners. And in God's grace, the church is a little glimpse of heaven on earth. If it's doing it right, that's what it's supposed to be. People are supposed to look at the church and say about the church what these people are saying about this community, about us, however inadequate. they're, They're supposed to say that's the way we're supposed to look. That's the way we're supposed to live. It's a, it's a very powerful vision. And the image that I want to especially zero in on is this image of openness to being taught, this, this image of openness of mind to learn and willingness of heart to obey. So I have a general question and then I have a specific question. My general question is, because you see, this means something different for you than it means for me. What does it mean for you in your life right now where you live and move and have your being to be taught the Lord's truths and to walk in the Lord's paths? That's a really, really important question. And I've said this to you before, and I, won't, I never tire of using this as an illustration, that Microsoft ad, right? Where do you want to go today? Right, where you sit at your computer and you're in charge of the universe. This is the, this is the complete opposite of that, 180 degrees. This is, Lord, where do you want me to go today? Where do you want to take my life today? Where do you want to take my family today? Where do you want to exercise my gifts today? You see, you see the difference? One person is in charge, and that's an illusion. The other person is being guided. And when Jesus comes into the world, he says this. He says, follow me. You're not a leader. Newsflash, you're a follower. You're either following Jesus or you're following somebody else. Everybody I'm talking to this morning is following. The question is, who are you following? And this, this text is a beautiful general invitation to follow the Lord. The question is, what does that mean for you specifically and your family? That's the general question. The specific question I want to tie to the week that we just uh, concluded. And the way I want to do it is just to think about the importance of thanksgiving. So my specific question is, if we're going to be taught the ways of the Lord, it would be good if we were reminded as Christians that one of the ways the Lord wants us to live is to be thankful. And there's so many ways I can talk about this to you. I spent a lot of time in Thanksgiving week thinking about Thanksgiving. 
Um, I was thinking this week about the liturgy. Do you know, have you ever gone through the liturgy and just looked at how many times the word thanks is there? It's powerful, right? The Lord be with you. Oh, you guys are not awake. The, the Lord be with you. There you go. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Now, now listen to what you just said. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right. Present tense. It's the way we're made. So think back to the original sin, first of all, backwards. When you think of Adam and Eve, there are lots of ways to think about what went wrong. But one of the powerful ways is it's a sin of idolatry, absolutely. But it's also a fundamental sin of ingratitude. Think of it. They're given everything. I mean, it's awesome. No sin, no imperfection. What you see is what you get. No mass, no pretending. Right? It's, it's the ultimate Christian community. They were naked and unafraid. Fantastic. And God says, except for this one tree, I just don't want you to deal with that. And they're not told why. It's one tiny limitation. Instead of being grateful for this massive amount of gifts that they're given and the awesomeness of the God who gave it to them, they get upset about the one thing that's somehow restricted. It's fundamentally a sin of ingratitude. They were destined to be people to live for the thanks and the praise of his glory. And they didn't. That's the primal sin. Yes, idolatry, but also ingratitude. Turn it around and think about eternity, that heavenly community that I was pointing you to throughout the beginning of this sermon. If you look in Revelation, you remember Revelation, right? That's the book at the end of the Bible nobody reads. <laughs> right? You do know that one. Okay, so when you get to chapter 4 and you get the heavenly uh, curtain opened and you get this little glimpse, they're worshiping, which means, by the way, every time you come to worship, you're practicing for eternity. You do know that. Every week, that's what you're doing. You're practicing for eternity. So it would be good if we got good at it now because we're going to be doing it for a long time. But what I want to remind you of in chapter 4 is that thanksgiving, which we were created to do, is actually part of redeemed humanity. The, the very community that I described to you when the curtain is turn, torn back reads this way. And whenever the living creatures, listen, give glory and honor and thanks... Heaven is actually fundamentally characterized by thanksgiving. So when I read all the articles this past week in the secular press about thanksgiving, I got fairly angry because all the people were excited about the power of thanksgiving, the psychological value of thanksgiving. And when you read them all, it was very troubling because everybody was excited about thanksgiving, but it was never clear who they were being thankful to. And what was very clear is nobody was thankful for God. He somehow got left out of the picture. And that's a perfect portrait of this culture. Weekends will go, will go around with Michelob, right? You only go around once in life. It's all this worldly and this dimensional. Well, that's not the world that you and I live in and have our being in. So I want to challenge you generally about this question of where is your mind being called to learn the truth of the Lord and where is your life being called to walk in the path of the Lord? Specifically, that just to remind you of the fundamental importance of being grateful. And one story, then I'm done. This is actually from one of my friends, and I've never used it before. I keep these things in my files for the someday, and today is that day. But part of the reason I like this story is because it's straight out of an Anglican parish, and it's in New York City, 
And it's a great story about the power of thanksgiving. So see what, see what you make of it. This is the way he starts his story. Thanksgiving is ministry. It is service. It is a grace shared. It is the good news. Let me give you an example. My parish of some years ago in Brooklyn, New York, had daily morning prayer at 7 a.m. every weekday. By the way, as I begin, I hope you will realize it's very, I've been to some of these services, it's very hard to do a daily morning prayer anywhere in the world. In Manhattan, it's brutal. That is a really courageous thing to do. The faithful group who attended was, as is the case here, rather small, yes, but faithful. There was one elderly woman, Mrs. J, who came two or three times a week, week after week. She was a long-standing member of the parish, but in fact, I rarely saw her outside of Sunday, and at least until she began coming to morning prayer, I didn't really know her that well. She, was, she wasn't part of the dinners and gatherings. She didn't help at the soup kitchen or the altar guild. She didn't attend Bible studies and adult uh, teachings and so on, but the weekday morning prayer somehow caught her attention and snared her spirit. Her presence was unswervingly regular and consistent. Week after week, month after month. My rector, every once in a while, I love this detail of the story, would wonder if we couldn't, after all, just cancel this service because so few people were coming. But the problem was, oh no, Mrs. J will be there. I guess we have to keep going. One day, Mrs. J turned up at morning prayer with a stranger. She introduced her as a friend, but not an Episcopalian. Throughout the prayers, Mrs. J carefully helped her navigate the prayer book. The friend returned and kept returning. A couple of months later, a new friend appeared with Mrs. J. She, too, was lovingly steered into the fold of morning prayer. Then came a third friend. I finally did comment to Mrs. J that she was providing quite the ministry of an evangelist. She replied this way, Oh, she said, I love this service so much. It has meant so much to me. I can't imagine not dragging somebody over to share it with me. Can you? My point is a simple one. Our greatest joys in God are the ones that we express thanks for. And when we do it, we almost naturally always gather others into the experience and practice. That is why Thanksgiving, listen, is an active, engaging attitude. Thanksgiving, it is real, or if it is at least well-formed, necessarily leads toward others, touches them, makes them know what true joy is. It spills out and carries our hearts and energies beyond ourselves and into the lives of others. Well, thank God for Mrs. J who brought three friends to morning prayer. But that's a great image of what I'm talking about. It seems simple, but it's not. Rejoice in the Lord always, Paul says in Philippians. Again, I will say rejoice. So I give you the hope of heaven, brothers and sisters, an awesome multi-ethnic, multilingual, multinational community that is truthful and attractive and righteous and beautiful. But I also give you the challenge that we're supposed to live as little glimpses of heaven on earth. And I call you specifically to learn to give thanks more often for more things as the Holy Spirit enables you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.